All right. Well, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast. This is a Monday Minute episode where we answer your listener questions. I'm joined by Steve today. How's it going, man? Uh, good. Yeah. Had a good, fun Father's Day weekend, hanging out with the family, just barbecuing, doing that kind of stuff. So living the dad life. Living the dad life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> getting got last, last few little training hikes in for the death hike, kind of brought the intensity down a touch, more just kind of um, just keeping the legs moving. So, yeah. Do you, I haven't even asked like your back, your knee, you sometimes have issues you're uh-huh. fighting a little bit with either. How's all that stuff? Yeah. Going? Yeah. For whatever reason, like I'm sure it's not for whatever reason, but um, just because the training ramps up the six weeks prior, it seems like that, you know, a week to two weeks out of the hike, my knee starts bugging me. Um, and this year I started trying to incorporate more uh, just kind of lifting with dumbbells, you know, in the garage and just doing a little bit of stuff. And that kind of flared up the the old lower back. So certainly, um, there's been lots of ice. I got ice on my back right now. Uh, <laughs> lots of ice and lots of ibuprofen the last week, just trying to keep everything tamed down as much as possible. So yeah, I did, uh, we'll see if this bites me in the ass or not, but, um, <laughs> that, <laughs> the last few, uh, uh, death hikes I've get like, I have like a pretty good callus that develops like on my right heel on like kind of outer edge. Um, and it's just, and then I get a blister underneath that callus. And so I jumped on Amazon and bought like this pink, uh, pedicure little kit thing. Aww. And, uh, it was pretty cute. Uh, Steve got a it, pedicure for father's yeah, day. It basically came with like a little rotating, um, you know, it looks like you could sand wood with the damn thing. Um, and just freaking went to town on all the calluses I got on my feet. Um, so we'll see if that it ends up being good or bad. I'm not sure. Uh, yeah, I think if you maybe did it like a month prior, it probably would have been better, but a week prior is a little sketchy, but, um, yeah, we'll see. I'll, yeah. The, yeah. We'll see what happens. Like, no big deal. It's just an experiment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll see what comes of that later. Yeah. We're headed out this week. Um, just a, a practical heads up. We will be essentially offline, um, part of Wednesday guys are starting to travel and then all of Thursday and Friday. So from a EXO standpoint, if you call us, uh, Bella will definitely be helping out answering the phones, but pretty much most of our staff will be out the latter half of this week. We will be shipping daily as well, but in terms of emails and phone calls, um, appreciate a little bit of patience there. And then we will, uh, should be limping our way back into the office on Monday next week, if all goes well. So We'll have uh, more stories to come for sure from the death hike. The conditions, I feel like Steve are getting who knows what. Like we just got some video from a guy who was flying up there that looked pretty good snow level wise. Some of the tools we use for semi-live satellite imagery was showing quite a bit of snow, but definitely some of that melting off. So there's just a lot of unknowns going into this one, which is great. I know one of the guys, like one of the pat, we're supposed to go through a pass called Crow Pass and there's still like 90 inches of snow in that pass. So, uh, as of like a week and a half ago and the snow is melting fast, but it's going to be, um, you know, I've, I've left a lot of details vague just cause I want to figure it out when we get there. And, uh, there's certainly going to be some challenges that, uh, we get confronted with, I think between snow and then p- potentially river crossings where they're, you know, it's like swim or not get across options. Uh, so we'll see how that goes. Should be fun. Packing floaties. Yeah. <laughs> Take a big right. old noodle with you the whole way. <laughs> I'm going to, the thing on the plane where you put around and you pull the strings and goes inflates around your neck. I'm just going to yeah. walk off the plane with one of those <laughs> as I fly up there. 
Uh, <laughs> I like it. All right. Well, before diving into listener questions, just wanted to remind you guys, we do have a gear giveaway going on here in the month of June, 2022. So we haven't checked that out yet. Uh, there'll be a link in the show description, but it's just exomountaingear.com forward slash June dash gear. And you can go uh, enter to win some gear from us as well as some of our friends. So check that out if you haven't already. Diving into the first listener question that came through uh, to tackle an EXO question first, it's about using the frame extensions in the K3 frame. Hi, my name is Colin. I just had a quick question. Uh, when it comes to adjusting your pack, um, how it can be adjusted by flipping the um, little stays at the bottom, what weight would you recommend that adjusting act? Normally, a day pack is probably anywhere from 35 to a 40 uh well really that would be just you know hiking in for the week depending how long um but do you once it gets over 50 would you change those or once you're you know get a kill and the weight is heavier you know closer to 80 100 pounds um is that when you would do it what's your preference or experience with it uh, i noticed in one of your videos as well that you kind of mentioned hey you're running it with it flipped already um, that's just how you liked it um, just wanted some more feedback on that just trying to fit my XO a little bit better for me appreciate it thanks for all that you guys do I've been learning a ton I'm excited for this coming season all right good question Colton Steve what's uh what's your take obviously the extensions are there as um and basically another option another tool for you to you know, get the most comfort out of your pack as possible. And one of the traditional downsides is, you know, you'll see on um, super like common thing on forums, like, oh, the load lifter angle isn't high enough, right? Um, well, all that ever is, is a function of frame height to begin with. And then pack, pack design comes into that a little bit. Once you're loaded, there's like, how much is the frame kind of slipping down your hips? So that does play into it as well but the the primary driver is just frame height if you want a taller uh, or a higher angle of your load lifter you just need a taller frame and uh and it's there's also that misconception out there that well i, I want to change the load lifter angle so i'm going to move the harness up and down it's completely false like technically if you bring the harness down on the frame yeah you might increase that but all you've done is just put a bunch of weight on your shoulders and just kind of move the whole pack up higher on your body so it's not It'd be sitting up higher on your hips where it probably shouldn't be. Um, so it, it always just starts with hip belt centered on the hips, snug down nice and tight. And then whatever the rigid frame height is up from your hips to where it stops and the load lifter connects, that's your load lifter angle. There's nothing you can do about it. Um, so all that being said, for this guy, he may, when I, when I was designing K3, I just wanted to add some flexibility into there. So that's why I did the frame extensions. Depending on your frame height, you may not ever need to increase the, the um, extensions and make it taller. As a general rule, I'd say, you know, 50 to 60% of guys, it's it's perfect for them. For me, it's perfect, right? Like, um, you know, I'm 5'11", um, 32-inch inseam, and so I'll, I'll run a, uh, well, I bounce back and forth, actually, depending on the hunt and, and the thickness of the terrain. But basically, you run, you hunt in the short setting, and then when you kill something, you flip that around. So I would say, um, yeah, as a general rule, if you're just day hunting 30 pounds, 40 pounds, like you said, and then when I, I wouldn't flip that around until, you know, meat is on the ground and you start packing really heavy. 
why you're still hunting that lower frame height, better head clearance, all that stuff. Those are positives. Um, an exception to that would be you're going in for a 10 day trip and you're, you're packed 60 pounds. Uh, you might as well just flip that around and you're just going to get a little bit, you know, better comfort on your shoulders with that higher load lift angle. So, uh, I think that answers all of it. Yeah. I think the thing to, to highlight is you may never need to change it. Um, it kind of depends where, what your build is and how you fall into what the called the non-extended frame height is already. So um, you know, if you're five, nine on a short frame, you probably don't need to ever extend it. If you're six foot and you're running a tall frame, you might not need to extend it. Um, for me personally, I'm six, two and run the tall frame. And I typically don't extend it unless I'm just truly packing heavy, heavy, like packing meat out. So even with 60 pounds for me, for example, kind of that midweight, not really heavy, but heavier than kind of standard hunting loads. I typically won't use the extensions, but the great thing is they're there. They're easy to change, try it back and forth, go both ways, uh, on specific weights in your training. So if you're training with 60 or 70 or 80 pounds, like try it back and forth and, and see if you can notice that difference as well. Um, so as we say, as we say all the time, like the more you can get familiar with your gear and know what works before the hunt the better off you're yeah, going to be. Off, so right. do the same yeah. thing with the frame extensions. Yeah. And just, I mean, one, you know, you, you always want the load lifter higher than the top of your shoulders. Like that's a given the exact angle and stuff is up to you know, it just, it's up to how it feels on your body. Um, but certainly load the pack up with 60, 70 pounds, you know, hike around for half a mile or something like that. And then just go look in a mirror or have someone take a picture of you from the side to look at that load lifter angle. And if, uh, you know, if it's, flat, uh, with the top of your shoulders, you know, me meaning that, uh, um, you know, you're basically the, the frame height and your torso are even with each other, then you need to, um, and, you know, increase the extensions and get a little bit of lift out of there. All right. Well, this, um, next question that came through is kind of about access and mobility when looking at new areas to hunt. Hi, my name is Travis. I am from Southeast Ohio and uh, headed out on my third elk hunt. Uh, hopefully this fall, if we get drawn in Montana, going to, um, we're looking at a couple of general units uh, that I've never been to. A friend has been there. And what I'm wanting to know is how you guys go about, if you've never been to an area, figuring out what kind of access there is. Uh, it appears like there's some places where we could drive a truck right up to it. Um, but there's also some areas where it might be advantageous to have like a full wheeler, um, and so we're trying to decide, do we want to take a four-wheeler from Ohio all the way out there if we're only going to use it in a couple scenarios? I know in 2019, whenever I went to Colorado, it was almost like the unit we went to, you almost had to have four-wheelers um, in order to kind of even get back to the backcountry where you would want to start. Um, so how do you guys determine that? What resources do you use to figure that out? And uh, thanks for what you guys do. Appreciate the podcast and hope to hear back from you soon. Thanks. All right. Good questions from Travis. This comes up a ton um, in emails and stuff like that to us when guys are looking at areas coming from out of state and they're just not quite sure. Can I drive here? What is access like? Maybe I see this road on a particular map, but I don't see it on another map. Um, all those issues, which are, are great to look at. And I think Steve, to break it down, this really does take a little bit of work because I don't think there's a single resource or that you should even trust a single resource. So just because you see something 
marked as a road and Onyx maps, for example, you don't necessarily know, is that open? Is it always open? And what type of traffic is that open to? Meaning uh, truck, motorized, four-wheelers, side-by-sides, or maybe there is a width restriction and it's motorized, but not to side-by-sides. Like There's all kinds of different rules. So throw a few things out there for you guys. The first thing I would cross-reference um, is the United States Forest Service for pretty much every area or what they call like a district that I'm aware of uh, is going to have a motor vehicle use map. So an MVUM for motor vehicle use map. And if you just search um, USFS for US Forest Service, MVUM, um, you should be able to find those resources for the specific area, assuming you're going to be on National Forest Service lands and look at what are the roads and then what are they open to? So that's one thing I would start with. Uh, to follow that up, I would, if you get serious about areas, I would call. So try and call either um, perhaps fish and game, but again, if you're on federal lands, maybe just that ranger district. So it, maybe it's not a state fish and game agency. You can probably get some information there, but think of that actual forest service district uh, office. Call those guys perhaps. And then there are state resources. Like I know um, Steve Idaho is a great example. Uh, they do pretty good with um, having very specific data on roads and trails, what they're open to, when they're open seasonally, because some roads close even in the middle of hunting seasons, for example. Um, so pay attention to the dates that you'll be hunting and don't just rely on like, I can think of very specific examples of a, a, you could read perhaps online where it goes like, oh yeah, I went and hunted this part of Montana and, you know, we use this road. Is that going to be open when you're there? If you're hunting a different season, maybe not. So it, it does get, um, I don't want to say tricky, but you just really do have to pay attention. And I would cross-reference several things and then try and verify that with uh, information from somebody on the ground with a phone call. Yeah, it's... Um it's tricky. Like I said, I've always like, you just almost got to put boots on the ground, man. Um, cause you just don't, especially if you start looking down, like, can I go that, can I take my four wheeler or my old truck down this, you know, logging road that I can see exists on Google earth, you know, and, um, Idaho's done a, a lot of areas I've hunted. It seems like over the last 10 years, a lot of gates have popped up where they're keep, you know, shutting down access to certain areas and specifically some of the spots we hunt, you know, the roads, they're, you can drive them all the way up until like August 30th or September 15th or, um, and they just, then they sh shut the gates, um, keep people out for, for the animals. So, um, it's, uh, it's tricky. One, one other one I remember, um, I actually just did a podcast with this. Who was that that was talking about? Um, I know it hasn't aired yet. Um, but I'm private, like private land. Oh yeah. 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 Uh, that was yeah, just that, with Brian from hush. Okay. Yeah. So I had the same, same thing happen to me once on, um, on an Idaho hunt. I had just got on Google earth, found the area I wanted to hunt, didn't cross-reference anything. You know, you could see this beautiful, you know, uh, dirt road leading all the way into the place. And I just assumed, Oh, I'm good to go. Well, I get there, drive a mile, you know, turn off the highway a couple miles down the road. Um, all of a sudden I run into a private land gated off the thing. And I was like, son of a, you know, there was a private land for, uh, this little section of it, but I didn't, you know, didn't see that on Google earth. Right. I just saw a road going through it and you didn't, didn't zoom in close enough to see the gate and it completely ruined my hunting plans because they had it all gated off with no access. So 
um, had to, you know, be out there. I was going on elk hunting by myself and had to kind of just completely revamp the whole plan. So that's something else to like cross reference. You know, if, if I jumped back to Onyx, which I don't, you know, I don't think I had this at the time, had this uh, the Onyx tool, but I would have had the private land layers on and seen that that crossed through private and it at least would have raised a red flag. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, certainly lot, there's a lot of work. If you start looking at roads that, uh, once you get onto dirt roads and what's open, what's not, what's private, it's, uh, just get as much resources as you can. And Onyx um, was the Onyx off-road, right? I don't know if that's, uh, I think you got to pay for it completely separate of Onyx Hunt, but they list all that stuff. And again, I don't think it's perfect, um, but it's another tool to have to cross-reference. Yeah, I mean, he kind of talked a little bit in that question about kind of determining, is it worth it, for example, for him coming from, I think he said Ohio to bring four-wheelers. I would just say that's a, that's a call based on where you're wanting to hunt and what specific areas you're wanting to hunt. So just because there's roads and there's, it's open to quads and you could run a four wheeler, maybe you want to take advantage of that to reach a certain area, or maybe your strategy becomes, Hey, guys are going to be running up and down this road and that road and whatever with these four wheelers. What do I think that's going to do to hunting pressure? What do I think animals are going to do accordingly? And maybe that helps you identify a different pocket that you want to hunt. Um, but maybe you don't need a four-wheeler to access, or maybe you're looking at a specific area or unit and you do see, Hey, there's a ton of access here. It's going to be open for four-wheelers the seasons I want to hunt. I just flat out don't want to compete with that. So maybe you're just going to move to a different area completely. Um, so I think it's a pretty personal call and really just the style of hunt that you're looking at and then thinking are four wheelers going to be an advantage to you for the specific areas you want to hunt or are the presence of that pressure and traffic going to be something you want to avoid altogether. Um, and perhaps that leads you to hunt a different pocket, different area. So, all right, Steve, this question came through, um, by email and I don't know if we've actually answered this question he said what range do you guys zero your hunting rifles at and why at that range so steve we've talked plenty about our rifle setups and like we've talked even about verifying our zero after traveling all that but um i don't know we've explicitly stated but you and i both use a hundred yard zero for our rifles um in my head there's a bunch of reasons for that one of them does have to do with the fact that it makes it very easy to verify your zero. Uh, if you're traveling and you just want to double check, it's like, you just need a hundred yards anywhere, which is pretty easy to find. It's, uh, it's going to be, you know, think through your setup basically. So there are, could be advantages to zeroing further out to maybe you're doing like a maximum point blank range type setup with your rifle where, you just want to be kind of flat and be able to put the crosshairs on the target from call it zero to 300. Um, I get why guys do that. It just depends on certain things. Like for you and I, Steve, we have scopes that are set up to dial. And so having a hundred yard zero, we just are very familiar and okay with ranging something at 300 yards, for example, dialing to that and shooting. So it's not so much uh, a concern for me to think through what is my rifle zero and where do I set that to get the flattest trajectory from, you know, zero yards to choose the distance. I more 
just want that 100 yard zero. I want to verify that it's zero with the conditions I'm hunting at. And then if I need to dial a little bit, I'll dial a little bit. Um, it's just a factor of the type of scope that I'm using. And then also to pair with that, having a accurate laser rangefinder has obviously changed the game. And then especially some sort of range finding device with ballistics, which you and I both use and Steve, that's going to get you not only it's this distance, but then here's the dial. So it's range dial shoot um, and hundred yard zero just makes that really easy. Any other thoughts, Steve? Yeah, I think, I mean, you hit it right on the head. Basically. I, I mean, I used to do a 200 yard zero and then I think it was, we had Darren Cooper um, on the podcast and he was the one who was like, yeah, it's, it's fine, but just do a hundred yard zero. Cause that's so much easier to verify in the field, like you said. Um, and then just dial, you know, and now I run around, um, I will adjust my rifle scope to the country that I'm in. Um, and that, if that makes sense. So I'm hunting thick timber, all the shots are going to be 150 yards less. I'll just have it on zero. But if we're kind of in that, you know, uh, like where we were elk hunting last year, it's like, eh, it's open. There's a chance of a quick 250 yard shot. Uh, then I'll just dial to like 1.5, I think, and just leave it there. And then that way, even if it, it's a hundred yard shot or if it ends up being a 250 yard shot, I can just hold dead center and shoot. Right. Um, and then, uh, and then, yeah, but if I was to have an older fixed scope, uh, without a dial, then yeah, I would certainly find the, uh, f- find a distance that I want to zero that in. So it's just kind of point and shoot and, and you're good to go. Uh, versus doing a hundred yard zero. Let's wrap up uh, with this question today, Steve, about this guy who has the potential to hold an elk and deer tag at the same time. And he's somewhat considering if that's a good idea or what he should do with this strategy. Hey guys, this is Matt. Um, big fan of your guys' podcast. Been listening to it uh, this year and it's been, uh, it's been a lot of good stuff. Um, I know everyone's probably starting to see their tags drawn and uh, seeing what they want and didn't get. Um, I put in for mule deer and elk this year and didn't think I was going to get both, and I did get both. Uh, kind of wondering what your guys' opinion would be on how to attack that um, or if it's too much altogether and I need to take a tag back. Um, I'd love to kind of go for both if I could start primarily for elk and then if I had a good stock on a mule deer, I saw, uh, try to make it happen. I just didn't, I didn't want to have too much going on and not pursue a good elk hunt. Uh, just will take your guys' opinion on, uh, whatever good advice y'all have for that. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks. Bye. All right, Steve. So I reached back out to Matt to get a little more information. And so these are both archery hunts, uh, in Colorado in September, obviously. So he has, an over-the-counter elk tag, but this deer tag that he has, he actually drew the tag. Uh, He has 10 days total that he could hunt. Uh, And then he also followed up in one of his emails and said, my thought is to primarily go for elk and then either make a mule deer stock if one is decent enough to uh, be in a stockable, stockable position, or if he hasn't shot an elk leading up to the end of his 10 day hunt, Uh, Then he was thinking of switching gears, going for mule deer because he's planning on being about seven miles deep. So you get to that point essentially where it's like, all right, if I truly have to be done in 10 days, I can't kill an elk after call it day eight, right? Because it's going to take two or three days to pack it out if he's seven miles deep. Um, 
So there's no right or wrong answer here. I think we can start with that. The thing that sticks out to me and what I learned about the follow-up to Matt is that he drew this deer tag. It sounds to me like he wants to hunt elk more. <laughs> um, he's kind of saying that uh, he said he primarily wouldn't go for elk and only maybe go after a deer if he found himself the right place, the right time. My, my big hangup is the fact that he drew a deer tag. And so I, I would personally feel if you were interested in it enough to apply for the tag and you drew it, that's where I would want to shift and, and dedicate my time to. So the other thing with that too, is if it's a, a deer tag that you drew, it's, a, it, it's in limited demand. It's like, if you're going to take that tag and not give it effort, you're essentially taking that opportunity away from somebody. Um, so it, just for me personally, I would either, I think, turn in the deer tag or like commit to making deer my primary target. Not saying I wouldn't hold an elk tag or even arrow and elk, like if the opportunity came, but for me personally, I think I would focus on the deer if it was a tag that I drew and I was going to hold on to it. But what are your initial thoughts, Steve? I mean, the, the initial gut reaction is, you know, pick one and focus on it. Cause it's, if you're kind of just like, um, if you're just wandering with through the woods and like, Oh, I've got these two tags on me and you're, you're not really hunting for elk and you're not really hunting for deer. It's just a recipe for not being successful. You know, um, there's a much better chance. I don't know. This sounds silly, but I think it's just based off personal experience that if you're really focused on hunting deer, because uh, that's going to involve a lot of sitting and glassing that an elk kind of comes out and feeds and you know, down below you 70 yards and you shoot it versus uh, the other way around. Like if you're actively up and hunting elk, you're it's really low that all of a sudden you're just going to stumble up on a mule deer buck. That's like standing there looking at you at 50 yards. It's a shooter buck. Like they're a little bit more, I don't know, keen and aware in my experience where they're, that's just not very likely to happen. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, to me, it, it just, so my, yeah, if, if he's just got 10 days to go hunt and that's it, then I would pick one or the other and then use that area as, um, you know, use, say you, he decides to hunt elk this year and he turns in his deer tag, then he'll have an extra bonus point for next year, whatever Colorado does. He'll can probably get the deer tag again. He'll have experience in the unit. He could go back and probably have a better chance of being successful that second trip around on deer just because he's been there before. That'd be my gut reaction. But if he's got a bunch of time and money and it's just the, so it's the elk season's just 10 days. Is that what he said? No, he just has 10 days available to hunt. Oh, he he's, has 10 days. He's out of okay. state, right? Gotcha. So he has okay. 10 days to be there. Oh man. Yeah. Um, having both, like having yeah, both it just depends on there's the, yeah. If he's got the, if he's got 10 days and, he, and the money's not an issue buying two tags, cause they're not cheap, uh, then get them both and hunt. Cause it, you know, it sucked to drive all the way out there killing elk on day two. And man, like oh, I got eight days left. I could still hunt something. Uh, mm-hmm. But a, a lot of that also would hinge on how many points are and how much, you know, how many points are invested in getting the steer tag. It was just a simple one that you, you know, with one or two points you dry every other year, uh, then I'd take both and go hunt and have fun. You're it's a great point on kind of the tactics and strategy and how that influences your odds at one or the other. Cause yeah, if you're, if you're running around like bugling in a very active, uh, somewhat aggressive elk strategy, 
your chances of just bumping into a deer or seeing a deer is going to be less. But as you said, Steve, like if you're patient, you're getting to a vantage point, you're kind of classing for deer and targeting deer that very well may end up putting you on good elk. Um, so if you hold both, that's something to keep in mind for your overall strategy, at least early on into the hunt. Cause maybe even while you're sitting there glassing, you're hearing bugles and then you do go decide to chase some bugles or what have you, but certainly a strategy of starting by being incredibly active and mobile and vocal for elk is going to influence, uh, your deer odds in a negative way. Yeah, I think so. I said that in some places I hunt elk and mule deer co-mingle, especially early August 30th, you know, that. I'm up high in a basin, look glassing for bucks, and there's a you know beautiful six point on the hill, 300 yards away, just feeding. No, no I traditionally I've never had a tag at the same time, so it's never. It's just like oh, I'll take a few photos of it through the spine scope, and then go back to glassing for deer. Um, but they certainly commingle. And then other areas I hunt the you know the elk and deer, they're just not in the same places. Uh, so it just yeah, just depends on the geography of the place and what what the animals are doing. Yeah, and I do think as you said, a good, not always true, but and most areas is more probable for them to be in a more similar area earlier on for sure. So if he has in Colorado, like if he's going to hold both, like that would favor towards hunting early in the month for sure. Since he has the flexibility. Certainly. Yeah. August. I don't know what is Colorado, maybe September 1st. Yeah. And I yeah, know it's, it's August 30th, in. like that first week, there's certainly a chance those bulls are still up high in the basins and are kind of intermixed with, with the mule deer a little bit. Uh, and then you get to September 10th, they're certainly going to start dropping down, rubbing antlers. Um, you know, they just start changing their behaviors. Awesome. Well, that's a wrap on this one, guys. Again, if you have any questions for us, just look for that link in the show description that says, leave a message. You can use whatever your device, uh, you can use whatever device you're on to leave us that audio message through SpeakPipe. You don't have to download an app or do anything like that. Super easy. Or you can also send us an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. As always, appreciate you guys tuning in and sharing the questions and the feedback. And uh, as long as things go well with the death hike here, we'll talk to you next week.